1: It will take nothing short of 100 Proof Living to restore lives. Join a conversation between a cop and a criminal with Brian Yates, Chris Pridmore, and featuring Caitlin Meath, working to inspire and motivate others, rebuilding the communication breakdown. This is the 100 Proof Living Podcast.
2: Well, welcome back to Conversations with a Cop and a Criminal. I'm Brian
1: Yates.
3: And I'm Caitlin Meath.
1: And I'm Chris Pridmore. And uh, welcome back to the show, guys. Uh, We've got a great guest today. We'll introduce him shortly, but he's got a ton of experience, so um, a lot of letters after his name, so I know that he's (laughs) super strong in knowledge, so we should learn a lot there and have some real options um, as we try to focus on on the show. I, this week, since our last episode, I had a couple, um, as we try to share, you know, things that we've learned along the ways. But I had one that really was uh, a lesson that I had forgotten. I once knew it. <laughs> I have a tendency to forget. And when I first was uh, post-release incarceration, um, I had started with a blog. It was called I Block Chronicles. And it was really my ramblings in jail. And that turned into a book that really is a journal guide. And then ultimately, you know, we had this involvement here. But there was something I had posted on this. And I would use to hand it out in a card. And it says, recovering a life is perhaps the most uh, difficult path an individual can ever embark on. Through rigorous honesty and hard work, recovery is just the tip of the iceberg. My purpose is that you find expectant hope and, and moments shared. Um, I forgot about how moments can change the game um, and in a positive way because I think that we get so focused on these events that that cause our lives to go sideways. We forget how a bad day or a bad moment or bad season can a- automatically change just with one being aware that things are actually changing. And I had a couple examples of that this week. Um, one was I've had a particularly painful event in my history that I've just had, and, and uh, anybody close to me knows exactly what it is, just struggle getting over it and moving beyond it and saying, what do I do with this thing because of the regret and the guilt and all this other stuff and just the hurt? And um, I had a moment that was at first it was in a burned dairy <laughs> and it just stopped me. Stop me completely and put me back in these places of isolation and things. And then as I processed it in a more healthy mind, that moment changed the game for me. So something I've been struggling with for about four years is now in a much more healthy place because of one moment and just being aware of the fact that in that moment I needed to capture that, not react the way I always did and think through it with what I've learned up to the point that the last time I felt that just really changed the game for me. And then the second example was a conversation with a really close friend who was having a particularly hard time and uh, just struggling with ongoing events and things just struggling so bad and realizing that even just perspective change in that moment, just thinking about things from a different angle, and really that's the ultimate point of the show is seeing options, what's other, what else is out there, Think about things just from a slightly different angle. It can it really change your situation and how you act and how you plan going forward. So um, it was a good reminder for me that um, these lessons that I once learned I still need to hold on to as I continue to grow. I think that we we think that progression means that we forget about some of these things that are really important to us historically, and um, I'm going to try not to forget that important one for me. Um, the... Second thing is on the site we talk a lot about events coming up. I'm speaking at South by Southwest on March 15th. Really excited about that. That event is um, about trauma and leadership. Uh, We are not exempt from trauma. We're not exempt from bad decisions just because we have a higher title or because we're law enforcement or because of any other thing under the sun. Um, People with a bad situation at home aren't always the ones that have problems. So it's across the board. And this event is really talking about the impact of trauma at leadership levels on the performance of an organization, and then we're a four-person panel, and I'm really happy to be a part of that. Um, so th- the, there'll be work outside of it, we expect, but initially it's just positioning that uh, tra- It's we have to address it. Face it. My opinion is simply is if you're in a leadership position, you're going through a hard time, say, I'm going through a hard time, and here's what I'm doing around me to, to mitigate <sighs> this issue. Um, Two other things real quick. Uh, We've got new postcards, posters um, that are available. We're asking for our loyal supporters to start getting the word out about that. We've had some people, Caitlin, put some stuff out on her uh, Facebook this week that got some real uptick on that. So uh, we're a grassroots effort right now from a marketing standpoint. We want people to hear the message we have here. We're not here to get famous. We're here to present options and have people think about things a little differently so that we can all live happier, healthier lives. The last thing we want to do, this is Brian and I, came up with an idea here. Caitlin, we really appreciate you being on the show. However, you're not really part of the team yet until you get a uniform. So Brian and I are diehard Cubs fans, so we got you a Chicago <laughs> Cubs shirt.
3: Oh, wow. <laughs> so, wow, thank so you. It was,
1: Caitlin's attitude on sports before the Super Bowl was, <laughs> I hope they really have fun.
3: That was a meme, <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: So, this is awesome.
3: Thank you. Yeah,
1: no problem. So we uh, we were t- joking a little bit about that. So you, you can't be part of the team without being a Cubs fan, and that will become painfully obvious as the season gets closer. I
3: picked up on that. All right. Yeah.
1: So that's what I had for this week. It's A little longer than normal, but thank you. Brian.
2: So I posted something this week on 100 Proof Living's website. I think we pushed it out through social media as well, and it was really just kind of this entryway into how I – kind of synthesize the learning to appreciate people material into law enforcement specifically. And I did it first of all, because there were people in my circles uh, that had heard us speak about it on this show and and heard me speak about it in other areas and wanted to kind of specifically understand how that could potentially apply in law enforcement. And it's my goal uh, as part of one kind of arm uh, of what we're doing to really reach into the law enforcement community in a way that's kind of a public discussion, kind of like the way this show started, you know, conversation between a cop and a criminal. It's really just a conversation between two guys talking about life issues, talking about things we struggle with, victories, whatever. I want to, I want to begin to do that as well, even if it's just in writing with the law enforcement community, because I think there are some things that can be learned uh, kind of from a strategic and tactical perspective in terms of how to make your life easier at work, And how to be more effective in the community. But what I hope that does is create an audience of people on the outside of the law enforcement community to be able to hear it and to be able to understand that, you know, officers go through the same thing. You know, not too long ago, a a friend of mine lost an infant baby to SIDS. And uh, just the other day, another uh, officer's uh, mother died. And it's this idea that there seems to be this tension and conflict in media or out on the street, but then everybody kind of goes back to their own world where they're all suffering the same thing. And I think the learning to appreciate people model has done a good job in my career of helping me to understand and literally appreciate uh, people that don't walk the same path in life that I do. And that's allowed me to have better interactions and I think be way more effective toward the end of my law enforcement career. So I just wanted to throw that out there. It's going to be something that I want to continue to kind of drip on over time and almost like a campaign strategy, just create this growing awareness uh, so that, you know, officers can uh, feel like they're more effective with less frustration. And I think equally, if not more important is so that the community can hear some of the real struggles that we have as well, so that it's not just this media one-sided battle and and maybe at some point it becomes much less of a battle and much more of us coexisting. So that's all I've got on that today, this week. I believe Caitlin, you have some updates for us.
3: All right. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I I wanted to comment on what you were sharing, Chris, as far as, um, the moments too, It, it jogged my memory as far as, um, there are two certain situations and I would say individuals from my past that have historically been difficult for me to process. And, um, I, my sponsor had me do inventory work on that, um, where I would essentially just write down what all of my beliefs are in terms of those people and those situations. Um, and then some time had passed. I got in front of her and kind of like doing a fifth stop. I had shared with her what I wrote down. And the remarkable thing is that when I got in front of her, I as I'm reading these sentences to her, I no longer felt those beliefs anymore. Huh. And that was hmm. amazing because these are beliefs that I carried around that I either, you know, concocted or maybe they were rational, irrational, whatever it may be. But I had firmly believed from a very, very young age. I mean, the one individual stems back as far as my father mm-hmm. who had passed when I was very young. Um, and so... That was beautiful. That, that was remarkable for me to actually not believe those things anymore. And it was the entire lineup of beliefs. I didn't believe a single one. Mm-hmm. My perspective had completely shifted. So, um, so Caitlin,
2: was was the exercise, once you wrote it out and actually put it on paper, then you could kind of intellectually disagree with yourself because you'd written it out and you saw it in front of you?
3: So you would think so. But in, in the moment where I was writing it out and I was putting pen to paper and actually presently processing it, I had those beliefs and I actually felt the resentments kind of surge within me. I firmly, firmly believe them. That was my reality. You know, it was was a mock of like how I felt about myself because of these interactions with these two men in particular, the one Mm -hmm. being my father and the one being my daughter's father. So that then... Caused all this fear, resentment, everything. So I just did this whole full blown inventory on it, and you know, this is a couple years into sobriety where I'm thinking I should have this stuff cleared up. This shouldn't be an issue anymore. <laughs> so I really appreciate what what you're saying too. That these are this is a progression, and it's a it's a lifelong thing that we tackle daily. But I'm like, I had the willingness, I was prepared to take a look at it. You know, right. I, I wouldn't have a year prior, I wouldn't have even six months prior, but then a, I would say a good couple months past before I looked back at that writing, verbally shared it with my sponsor. And as I'm sharing it, I go, I say a line, I go, well, I don't believe that. I say a line, I go, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. And it, it just was remarkable because the, the whole thing, I, I don't believe anymore.
1: I like that. I've always called the, the fairy tale, but I've never done anything with it. Like I create this fairy tale of what it actually was, and I'm the big villain that ruined it all. Right. But there's actually other – there's more to it if you get more granular. I like that a lot.
3: Oh, I had wrote the entire narrative. I dictated my whole future based on it. Like I am – I'm never going to get this. I'm never going to reach this level, such and such, because of – Gotcha. The, you know. So uh, I do – I appreciate you bringing that up. And, and Brian, I really, really appreciate the work that you do. You know, I read that most recent um, – I don't know if you want to call it an article or, or – you know, write-up that you did, and um, I just thought it was phenomenal. So thank you for sharing that piece of your heart and your world. Uh, As far as the things that I've been doing the last few weeks, a lot of it stems from Connections, Rounded Recovery. There are a couple of groups that I facilitate there um, that are really meaningful to me. The one is uh, Storytellers, we call it, and that's just a really informal discussion-type group that we do on Sundays. Uh, The numbers for that group, they they seem to grow it's it's a really uh, powerful time and like i said there's no no um formal way that we all sit down and introduce ourselves you can cross talk you can speak whenever you want type of thing and i i just think that it's more of a, um, a comfortable setting for a lot of folks and the cool part about this past sunday was that there was an individual who was new to the center uh new to recovery and just seeing the camaraderie that everyone there you know not not just me as you know facilitating this group but everyone collectively within that group was very attentive to let him speak as long as he needed to speak and relate on this topic and express their experience and how it might be similar or different. And I just literally watched light bulbs go off and smiles. And it's such a powerful thing for me to be a part of. It reminds me kind of why I do what I do when I'm in those positions of, you know, I'm not making any impact here. You know, just sitting there with them. That's meaningful. Mm-hmm. Just being a body present, willing to facilitate a discussion, you know, that's I think, enough.
1: Well, the thing that's beautiful about that is there are times when things get sideways in those groups, but by coming back and continually coming back and coming back, you get these opportunities where you actually feel, see the progress and you see those moments that you had. You, that was beautiful to see that change in the dynamic and what was being shared. Absolutely. It's nice.
3: Yes. Um, The other group that I really uh, favor a lot is this motivational commitments group. It originally was accountability group, but we found that the word accountability kind of scared people. a little bit. So I tried to make it a little bit of a softer name, hoping that it would have a bigger draw.
1: What'd you call it? Probation? But
3: in, but in the <laughs> sense, it is, we're being socially accountable, you know? So I'm trying to jazz up the name and soften its edges a little bit so that people will come. It come here, puppy. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I'm like, it's a mouthful. But I, I said to, to the director of the center, I said, well, can we change it to motivational commitments? Like make it a whole mouthful so that it's more appealing but uh so the point is social accountability and we just check in on a weekly basis and uh we talk about long-term goals short-term goals we make some concrete strategic planning on you know what we could do for the week ahead the cool part about that is that a lot of folks are finding they just need they're kind of in that maintenance stage so they literally just need to continue the excellent work that they're doing and they might not see any you know any firecracker growth right now but as they track it and because i I do track um these short-term goals and where they're at just in bullet points on a weekly basis they see that they've been maintaining you know whether it's dietary or you know stay involved in the recovery outlets that are important to them they see that they've been maintaining this for quite a period of time and i think that's powerful too so um i really i really appreciate that group too Uh, The last thing I wanted to be sure to touch on is this uh, organization called Code Gratitude. And I am just, I'm blown away by the efforts uh, that they have been doing within the recovery community, the community at large. Uh, It's ran by a woman, Carrie, and she uh, did kind of an in-service at Connections the other day. And her story, her personal backstory is is so touching, and then how she has created um, an effort to move forward kind of like we all do here in our own ways she has now created an effort to kind of give back to the first responder law enforcement community Mm -hmm. Uh, she provides that link in that outlet for an individual to make contact with the first responder or the arresting officer uh, from their past to you know either make amends or just simply thank them whether that be through cards a gift basket Mm -hmm. Um, I think they just did something that was put publicly on their page with the Irondequoit police and it it was pretty powerful and that helps the individual as well in their recovery process. I think it's a two-way street, goes along with the learning to appreciate people, Brian. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I just really love the efforts that they're doing. They're doing a Valentine's project right now, so we do have a display at Connections and... um, They will facilitate the delivery of that mail. They will make contact with whichever police department or whomever it may be so that the the mail gets to them.
1: That's an incredible program. Actually, mm-hmm. when I was at um, the American College Emergency Physicians thing a couple weeks ago in Dallas, that was one of the things that the, the physicians and the nurses and all that, and I see that in Thompson Hospital, too. They struggle with the fact that they see patients go through this and never really see where it goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure you see this in law enforcement, too, Ryan, that to bringing that full circle is a huge motivation because you look at the burnout rate and the problems that are going on in first responders right now. It's nice to see there actually is an impact um, that I really think there's going to be pretty huge future for what she's got going on there. I love it. That's kind of pretty cool to see and then we should do what we can to help her get the word out. Absolutely. That's so, it for me. That's it. That's great, actually. Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate the update. Uh, we, this is going to be an important part. And we believe so much in not just doing a show. The whole point of this is to make change in people's lives because somebody at some point reached out in ours in any varying types of situations. It is about eye contact. It's about the heart of we act. I know in this team here, and you know our guest, Keith, you'll see that with us all, is we actually really believe in this. So we're either super delusional yeah. and waste a lot of time or we're committed to a cause that actually matters. So, um we believe but uh today's we're going to get right into the interview here and just make sure that we're getting the full benefit of this time but um we've got a great guest this morning uh his name's keith greer and i when i was first looking at your bio keith i gotta be honest with you it was pretty intimidating uh, the, the number of uh letters that you have after your name i think i went through the elbow about twice to get through it all but, um, it's a lot of lot of schooling a lot of experience uh keith has over 39 years of experience as a keynote speaker executive and recovery coach um gone to in all kinds of things family therapy addictions uh he's also um circus uh, s u grad Sorry. um He's got life coaching, any number of possible certifications you can have. The guy's qualified to be here for sure. And I know from a reputation perspective, you and I met twice, but just casually the first time. This is the first time I've actually had a chance to really have a conversation with you. And your reputation is definitely strong uh, as the guy um, with coaching and recovery. And in my my world, it's been around peer work, but I know that we're going to learn a lot more about the options and, uh, and, and what's out there for the world as they're developing programs, but also looking at recovery specifically. So welcome to the show, Keith. Well, thank you. Thank you for
4: having me here. I'm honored to be a part of this movement that you guys are pushing <laughs> along,
1: yeah well welcome uh, when we 're just going to kind of get into a little bit about the backgrounds the audience Sure. i mean there 's a lot of titles and things like that, but you know really you know what are you working on right now
4: so uh, my, uh, my energy is uh, is put into a, a few different areas. I, I was sharing with you before, uh, as of about three months ago, a lot of my energy is now funneled into being a grandpa. Um, my wife and I had our first uh, grandson. Uh, given to us by our son and daughter-in-law. And so that has been the be-all and end-all in my life right now. Um, and just really, really reveling in that and, and, and enjoying that relationship. Um, in my professional world, I spend uh, time – I like to say I spend time in, in, in two somewhat related but, but different places. So uh, I spend a good deal of time in the executive coaching world. Uh, doing work in uh, kind of in the corporate end of things, a lot of uh, management training, leadership, group building. Um, And then I spend a good deal of time in the recovery coaching world. And uh, that is near and dear to my heart. My career started almost 40 years ago in the treatment uh, world down in Westchester County where I grew up. And uh, so now I I am a recovery coach. I I do work with folks uh, in helping them expand Uh, and grow their definitions of recovery. And as you guys know, I partner with this amazing, amazing woman in town by the name of Lori Drescher. And uh, we are two of the area's primary trainers for all folks who want to become a certified recovery peer advocate. So we do all of that training. We are involved in mentoring coaches. And then in addition to that, I like, like you guys, I just love talking about this. Like, yeah. You just can't talk enough about recovery and, and where we are in our understanding of it, which is is part of what just excites me. So that, as I always say, we just know more. We, we know more than we knew even five or ten years ago mm-hmm. about recovery, about stigma, about uh, change language, about stages of change, about just in our brain kind of neurochemically how we conceptualize change and change. Uh, make change happen, and you guys were talking wonderfully a moment ago about some of those stories we tell ourselves where that we get stuck in mm-hmm. uh, and and so uh, i uh I have had a blessed career and uh, have had an opportunity to do lots of different things and somehow i don 't know I have figured out how to be forty years into it and more excited about it than I was. 40 years ago
1: well, you helped explain one thing um because i knew you from the recovery side of it and um, for my day job i'm in recruitment for lab diagnostics so i spend most of my day through the linkedin thing trying to fill positions and find candidates and work right. with clients and things along those lines so i see your name come up there and i'm like what's recovery <laughs> work doing here and now i see so you're doing executive coaching so that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah um but you know, you have had a lot of exposure, and we've had a guest on here, Simone Okram, who's a mutual friend of ours. Mm-hmm. And I just think the world of her. She actually changed the game for me, just in that conversation, in terms of how I look at recovery and how we tell our stories. Right. And um, you know, we we dwell so much on the war story, and we forget to talk about the victories we're having. Right. So you know, one of the things that you wanted to get into really is around recovery, and you know, we recovery peer advocates obviously are a huge portion of that, as uh, in my world and in Caitlin's world. But what do you see? W- what's new in the recovery world for uh, that you see?
4: I, I don't know if I would call this new, uh, but it is. It's it's newer. So in some ways, this conversation is is maybe been about going on for about fifteen years, and and we can look at people like William White as as kind of the godfather of what some people call the modern recovery movement. And Laurie and I were just having this conversation the other day because it's it's one of those topics that we both can get up on a soapbox about and. So, the newer parts of the conversation are asking people who work in the in the treatment and recovery world in any way, shape or form, to be thoughtful about changes in language, uh, our understanding of stigma, um, to be thoughtful about some of the shifts that are going on in how we engage somebody in a conversation of change uh, related to their recovery, uh, given that we and and I'm very comfortable saying this because through my career I've had the opportunity to both be an addiction clinician and now over the last 15, 20 years more of a coach, that we have adhered to a very narrow definition of what is, air quotes, around acceptable recovery that has included some combination of inpatient, outpatient, total abstinence, 12-step adherence. And while I have no problem saying that has worked for a bazillion people, What we are learning is the bazillion people it hasn't worked for. And so that now we're very much into this concept of multiple pathways of recovery. Can we broaden our thinking? If we were to poll the 24 million or so folks in our country who would identify as being in recovery, what do pathways look like? Um, Who gets to say what real recovery is? And Lord knows a lot of people like to weigh in and say if you don't do recovery the way I did it then that's not real recovery. You can't use that word. The opioid epidemic has forced us to have to think about harm reduction. Mm -hmm. And there are many people in the traditional treatment and recovery world that struggle with that because their view is if everyone who identifies as having had a substance use disorder needs to be totally abstinent. And we know that is not true. So all of that is new. The issue around language of can we move away from words like addict and junkie and in the family world, I I, I do a lot of work with families. Can we please rid ourselves of terms like codependent and you're an enabler? Because for me as a coach or as a person who facilitates a helping conversation, that language doesn't help me any. It, it, It stops the conversation. It's filled with judgment and it's filled with limitation. And it's filled, I would argue, not everybody agrees with me. It's filled with a false understanding of the role of family and significant others in either recovery or, to use the term, enabling addiction to continue on. So language, stages of change, and then the last thing I think that is new is as we train certified recovery peer advocates, we're training people to be more coach-like. And inherent in coaching, and this, is, this comes from the larger coaching world, not just relevant to recovery coaching, there's two fundamental beliefs that guide my work every time I walk into a room and I sit down with someone I'm working with. Belief number one, I have nobody's answers. And belief number two, everybody has their answers. Those two beliefs have not been honored in the treatment and recovery world historically treatment and recovery world has very much been led by, I'm going to tell you what to do. And it's going to be very much based on my pathway, because that's what was meaningful to me. And it should be people should be passionate about their recovery. But in the world of how to facilitate change, and helping people truly identify what they would like to change, and how they're going to make that happen. We're starting to really wrap our heads around that we need to get away from telling anybody what to do.
1: There's a, I think there's a fine line in that, though, <clears throat> and this is my contention. I believe in the multiple paths of recovery. I believe in everything you have to say. My issue is is that I think a lot of us, especially in recovery, we take advantage of that. and We don't pick a path. Right. There are multiple paths, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't tell somebody how to get better. Somebody told right. me how to get better. My path, while it adheres to 12 path steps in a lot yeah. of ways, I'm not a religious A&A guy. Right. Uh, so I needed my path, but at the same point, I had to pick one. I couldn't just wander around in a field of multiple options and just keep wandering through True. this field. Right. So That's right. the thing is they sign up in the accountability that Caitlin was talking about right. earlier.
4: So as, a, so as someone who – again, from a helping conversation standpoint, mm-hmm. so that's where a modality like, uh, like motivational interviewing is incredibly powerful because I agree with you. the the I don't have anybody's answers and everybody has their answers. Isn't a conversation where I as the helping person just throw up my hands and say, what do you want to do, person sitting across from me? Mm-hmm. There is, there is just some really, really cool new science that we can grab onto of how to engage that person. So in, in the world of motivational interviewing and stages of change, you're talking about somebody who is in pre-contemplation. They're sitting in front of me and they're saying, I don't think I have a problem. I'm only here because my PO says I have to be here. You can go on with that conversation. Historically, we have looked at that person said, stop being in denial. Stop being resistant. Maybe you need to hit bottom. And to me, those are concepts that blame the person and they're concepts that describe the symptoms of substance use disorder. We should all expect to see that from somebody. Those are the symptoms of substance use disorder. I can work with that. I can engage that person in a conversation that is patient, which is part of the challenge. You need to be more patient to do it this way. That doesn't include me telling people what to do and is based on another premise, which is I believe everybody with an active substance use disorder is the most motivated person in their life to get well. I respect the fact that at times their behavior doesn't look that way. Mm. But no one will ever Keith, convince me.
2: Keith, yeah. Keith, let me jump in real quick. So let's back up to 30, kind of the 30,000-foot level. Yep. What we've seen through – Chris's examples and Caitlin's examples. And now you're just totally reaffirming kind of the value of this uh, peer coaching system as, as you, can you, can you talk a little bit about the history of that and in terms of how it was introduced? Sure. Because specifically as we look, you know, I'm, I'm in Iowa. Uh, Chris just got back from a trip to Texas. We have relationships in other States where these programs don't exist. And I think in terms of helping other people, what we're doing, what we've been doing for the last several episodes is highlighting the benefits of these programs, uh, but we don't want them just head nodding from a distance. We want to feel like right. they can be equipped to, right. is it legislation? Is it just working with hospital networks? You know, Tell us a little bit about how this programs in, in your local area there in New York have become successful and then... What can other areas do to try to replicate that in their
4: region? Sure. So let's start where some would say the whole peer movement started, which would have been the mid-1930s when a couple of incredibly brilliant folks created what we now know as AA. That, that is very much what the peer movement is about, that, that people can relate, can share lived experience, and can support each other. And so I, I kind of chuckled to myself. Chris, when you were talking before about some of the letters behind my name, because the longer I've done this work, the less important those letters (laughs) behind my name have become. Because this is about human connection. Uh And who better to connect with than somebody who has some similar lived experience?
0: So we can go that far back.
2: Plus.
4: Back and look at there's a there's the power of peer. Now, it's really interesting to me because when I entered the field almost 40 years ago, if you are a an, a an addiction clinician in your own recovery, you are allowed to self-disclose that that was perfectly OK. So even there, even with a few letters behind your name, maybe there was recognition of that connection that can happen that is maybe unique to people with a shared lived experience. There's a variety of reasons, which we could go into at another time, that that went away. So for the last generation, addiction clinicians have been told, you do not share your recovery status. Well, there's now research that shows, which is really maybe, Brian, at the end of the day, that this is part of what has driven it in New York. There's a like The fact that Medicaid will pay for this, they're not doing that out of the goodness of their heart. They're doing that because there is research to support that the the peer relationship has impact and impacts differently than the clinician relationship, very much especially in that initial engagement period of I just walked into this treatment center. I really don't want to be here, and I get to sit with someone who can totally relate. So we know it works because research tells us that this coach approach, this peer approach brings something very unique And there are – just as you mentioned, there are states that are not doing it. There are states that are way further down the road than than New York, Connecticut being one of them, uh, which is where we get a lot of our curriculum from that Laurie and I teach.
1: There was a, a lot of questions in Dallas. Uh, they, they were physicians from all over the country. It wasn't just the right. Texas people. But there was a lot of questions about how to get a peer program even started. And they were struggling right. with administration in hospitals and re, with their perception of what reimbursement would wouldn't do. And So it's kind of it, curious. But
4: it, it continues to be a struggle. I, I, I can say this very comfortably. The Rochester area, one of the places where we are so behind, is in the use of peers in emergency rooms. I can see um, that. Our, our health systems have been – that they have just been slow to come to that and, again, another conversation for another day of what that might be about because all you need to do is go down the road to Syracuse and and there's an ER doc in Syracuse who's doing some phenomenal work. Um, I had an opportunity to do some training with a, a gentleman from Yale. They're doing some amazing work there. So there's places where we're moving along and there's places where it's still kind of slow and – You know what I would say to a state like Texas is somebody just needs to take the lead because if it means sitting down with somebody in your state, whether it's legislatively or insurance wise or practice, there is evidence out there that a peer conversation, as an adjunct to, in addition to the you know some of the traditional clinical work that is done in the substance use disorder world. It works. It has value. So
1: the key, though, to you just used the word. I volunteer with Shatterproof, and we're all about evidence-based approaches to things. Evidence right. is critical to it because Huge. in that, even in that room, the discussion around why not was more anecdotal. Oh, well, there's this one peer that, you know, stole stuff. And, you know, and so I can, a I, uh, huge shout out to Thompson Hospital in Canada, Iowa, New York. They they use me as a peer in the ED there and they're phenomenal. The team is great with me. They include me in the process. The doctors talk to me about things. I mean, it's just a very welcoming environment right. because they know that we're all in it together. Right. Um, expectations are set though. And we all have rules of engagement in terms of how it works. And sure. That's huge too. But, you know, when, when you're offering this advice, so you talked about the Connecticut model, now it's moved over to New York, you know, we do have this problem. So, what what you, would you, if you were put in that role, were you actually saying, okay, somebody from another state came up to you and said, what do I do to get this going? What would you tell those guys directly to
4: say, okay, this is these are the steps
1: I would take to build a program like that?
4: So, I'm a, a bit in that conversation with somebody uh, in in Michigan right now who uh, who I connected with, who is very interested in bringing the the Recovery Coach Academy training there. And look, I, I would imagine. There are multiple pathways that you could choose to try and get this conversation going in a state where where maybe they're not moving in that direction yet. To me, there is something to be said for a certain building, a certain inertia, which means to me, what other voices maybe besides mine or the one person who is raising their hand and saying, I think this would be a really good idea. So could we – this is a conversation I'm in with this person. Could we find a place where there is an openness to just – getting a bunch of people together who seem to be on board with this, and let's just do the training. Let's expose people to what folks go through here in New York for that Recovery Coach Academy before we even talk about state certification and things like that. Because, And now I realize I'm incredibly biased because I'm one of the people who does that training, but I've had very advanced clinicians come through the Recovery Coach Academy with Lori and I, and every single one of them was blown away by it including me when I went through it, that shift from a conversation about treatment to a conversation about recovery is profound. It's a different conversation. And what we teach in the Recovery Coach Academy is the latest and greatest around stages of change, motivational interviewing, stages of recovery, um, stigma, language, the, the role of culture. There are concepts – I always tell the folks when they walk out of there, there are concepts they are walking away with that most folks in the addiction treatment world don't have yet. So just that – again, just even that conversation around language. So how do we get a critical mass started anywhere, one person at a time, um, that, that we have that conversation with?
1: I think that the key takeaway though is you don't have to reinvent the wheel. No. I mean there's, a pro, there's programs out there if you just dig deep enough. Right. You know, Brian, I, a question, and this is kind of winging, we didn't prep for this, but, you know, in law enforcement, where is the crossover at, at for peers and functional behavior like this? I mean, it's obviously a critical role if other first responding. I mean, EMTs, you know, one of the things that they have value in and we've talked to them about, and we actually have a, a director of EMT coming in here in a couple of weeks, um, about the value of the peer role and working with them. Where in law enforcement do you see that benefiting? an actual peer function. I mean, Caitlin takes the bull by the horns on that one, but.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it's kind of twofold. I think in the, in the type of work that Caitlin does uh, is specific to, you know, on the civilian side, a way to shoulder up with people, right? And I think that's what Keith's getting to. Instead of this kind of face-to-face across-the-table treatment model, it's we're in this together, shouldered up with someone that, you know, I, I I know that potentially sometimes when someone's speaking to you and you know, they don't have the same life experience, they don't, don't have the credibility that you need to really offer that trust and be willing to kind of always follow what they say versus someone that has walked through it, has been to the other side. It's like they took that cruise and they've come back and they said, Hey, it's way better when you get over there. So I, I think what she's doing in that role is already indicative of something that works. Actually, on the law enforcement side, it's very difficult because people that might have PTSD, people that might, you know, themselves as officers uh, develop a substance abuse problem or, you know, there's a a number of other issues that's that's still taboo. And so, you know, you see this year the number of suicides uh, from police officers Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe it's just my personal opinion is indicative of how taboo it is. I'd 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 rather call it quits than reach out to find help. And (laughs) obviously, there's a mass collision of family issues and personal issues, and sometimes mental health issues, and work issues, and this increased media and society pressure. And there's a lot going on, and I don't want to paint it with a broad brush, but. You ask, where does that exist? And really, large departments have uh, staff psychologists, but you're talking major metro areas, and almost every small department will hand you a form that says, you know, here's your employee assistance hotline, Mm -hmm. and you know, and trust us, it's not going to be a bad reflection on you if you call someone. Well, you're supposed to be the hero. You wear the cape. You're not going to pick up the phone and call someone and say, "Hey, I need some help," right? I mean, it's just not part of that culture yet. And that would be where I would hope that this kind of advocate and peer model could really grow uh, within law enforcement, because I think it would do a lot to minimize stress. And I also believe firsthand that it will increase effectiveness in the community.
4: Right. Right. No, I agree. I I would love, you know, in the perfect world, how cool would it be to have peers ride along um, to be there? Cause I, I can't even imagine having the role of any first responder. Because part of I'm assuming, this is a big assumption because I've never been in that role, but part of the skill set is in the moment when I'm responding. How do I keep my emotional self together, calm, so that I can think through the the situation in front of me. And and yet what I hear you saying a bit, Brian, is that there's a cost to that over time. Uh, and um, it, it's interesting, I was thinking when you were talking Uh, on maybe a bit of a a lesser level uh, as as related to police officers, it's an interesting conversation that I'm in in the workplace right now. Because if you think about the traditional workplace, we've all been told, leave your stuff at the door. You don't get to bring your problems into the workplace. You're here to work from 9 to 5. And and what we're finally starting to have a a conversation (laughs) about is that's never happened. We've always brought it in. We've just tried to put it somewhere because we've been told don't. So how about we work with it? And again, part of what I, th- I think is maybe even driving a bit of that conversation is the opioid epidemic, hmm. that, that, that this is impacting enough human beings who cannot leave their sadness at the door, that it impacts them. I had a conversation – is a little different, but I had a conversation months ago – with someone who's in a you know, pretty good level management position who was going through a crisis in their family. And he called me from the car. He was sitting in his car in the parking lot at his office, having a bit of a meltdown and feeling on top of the meltdown, kind of a whole other level meltdown of what's wrong with me. I should be able to compartmentalize this. Mm-hmm. I, and, and I needed to walk off the production floor because I couldn't. And some of our beginning work was, no, right? None of us can do that. We've just all been taught this thing that we're supposed to do that has never worked. So I find it really interesting that that, that even that maybe is a, is a beginning and growing conversation around our humanness. And that whatever context we happen to be in during the day, uh, including who we are as a working person – we don't get to cut off that part of us if we're struggling. We woke up that morning and we're struggling with things.
1: You're you're hitting on something that's a huge hot button with me, man. Um, and the what you're the structure you're talking about. This is something Caitlin and I were actually sort of speaking about. You know, there's people that really want to do this right in this recovery world, but it, I believe that the reason we've gotten to the state of addiction was because of other things going on anyway. Um, my personal belief system, my personal life experience has absolutely proven that. And one of the reasons why I'm passionate about the business side of it is to say, there's things that we've learned in recovery that Caitlin and I talk about all the time that are so valuable to prevention. Brian and I have talked since the beginning about getting upstream in prevention. Right. and prevention. And when we talk about business settings where you're supposed to be a certain way, um, there's some very valuable lessons that you can learn from somebody that's gone through a recovery process from a substance to prevent, And an example would be, I spoke with um, somebody this week that had written a piece out of her recovery from heroin, actually, saying it was so moving. She could see herself in the mirror and there was a girl crying. And where she was at now, she wanted to reach out and hug her and say, it's going to be okay. And at the end of the piece, she says, you can come out now. Right. And that was so powerful to me because that's the same thing we're doing in the non-addicted or non-substance-abusing right. world is that we're functioning as if nothing's wrong and we're having to hide it. And you see law enforcement with these huge you know, suicide rates and you see substance abuse like crazy in the first responders. It's because they're not allowed. That communication piece is not opening right. up. And I, I didn't mean to get a total rant no, about no, that before no. you hit on Look. something with me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and,
4: and in some ways from a gender standpoint, so wholly relevant to us gentlemen. Just because of the messages, I think we still get in in this in the culture we live in about who we're who we're supposed to be mm-hmm. as men around around our emotional selves. Mm-hmm. Right.
3: So one thing I wanted to say was that um, I went through. Keith and Lori's training so I'm, I'm very very grateful for that because then the evolution of you know be sitting here and empowering me within my own recovery um, and Keith as you're talking I'm just nodding my head yes yes <laughs> and it's cool because I, I apply those things in my daily life now and it's and I watch the tangible proof that it, it works right. and and you know and I can say too when I was in the training I had my reservations at first because I come from that AA standpoint that's what worked for me you know and I know it works and it's it comes from a good place. I cherish my recovery, of course. It's a, the most important priority of my life. So for someone to say that there's some other ways to do this and some other pathways, I'm like, oh, you're going to have to really <laughs> convince me of this. But but what's cool, Keith, and I appreciate what you're saying is that I, I have seen that to be very, very true. And along the lines, Chris, of what you're saying is that, you know, you pick a path. We're not just wandering aimlessly in the field. And I think that's why, especially at a recovery center, um, we offer all of these outlets. I mean, we have flyers lining the walls. Um, we have voc ed counselors come in, health insurance navigators. So whatever that specific goal is or um, what speaks to you. And I even say to people, if you, it's it's strengths-based, right? right? And that's the cool part about it, too. What are you interested in doing? And let me help you facilitate it so you can kind of lead a, a crochet class or, or whatever it may be. And also recognizing that we kind of need to put... A lot of pieces to the puzzle together. It's not mm-hmm. just one thing. It doesn't need right. to be um, that rigid, you know? And I. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
4: <laughs> Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
3: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm I'm really grateful that I was able to learn that along the way, Um, and the role model aspect. Because we've talked about this on the show prior that, you know, and for me with my sponsor, it usually takes a, a one or a couple people that I look up to and say, wow, I would like to have that lightness or that spirituality or, or this is what I'm searching for in my life. Let me just kind of gaze at you and grasp on to what you have and I'll take whatever suggestion you have. So I think that shoulder to shoulder, Brian, that that role model aspect is just so, so powerful And uh, as far as the peer role in law enforcement or first responder type way, uh, I'm I'm excited to know that they are implemented in hospitals because I think they have the you know, the Cody program and all that. That's kind of where you can get someone maybe right Willing to engage because they've just gone through something horrific like an overdose or, you know, but I have a really soft spot for law enforcement. I think that comes from my past and the way that they've served in my personal journey and the respect that I have for them. Um, Not realizing it at the time and also realizing just how human they are. And I know there's been a lot of talk within my work setting to be able to kind of blend the two and, uh, you know, potentially Our goal is that we would like the community to be a community for members to see that, you know, it's not war. It's not one against the other. No one's out to get anyone. Um, And if anything, gosh, law enforcement has a heck of a job. I I really I I respect you a lot and commend you a lot. And uh, yeah, that's that's where the, i'm at with it
1: the The crossover i think makes a lot of sense and that's where we are i think it does shift gears in the conversation here though you brought up stigma early on and you know we can talk about paths to getting better but we're only going to go so far as long as the buckets that we put over top of people exist and to me stigma is more than just a label i put on somebody it's it's Something maybe I put myself. So the story I shared about you know it's okay to come out now. We've almost got to get permission to, to, to tell people it's okay to express what's going yes. on with you. Yes. It's a perfectly acceptable. But right. if you got something that's busting you up, that you are a law enforcement officer protecting lives, and you want to go home and take yours, we've got to get to a place that that stigma right. is removed, even in your own head, yes, to allow you to have the conversation. Yes we see it even in in the recovery communities where we're getting better. I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but we see people getting better serving in the community and then also getting beat up again. I mean, what are your thoughts around those things?
4: I I have a very, a very specific way I think about stigma Uh, because again, I, I tend to look at so much of this conversation through the lens of somebody who facilitates a helping conversation and is often in conversation with other people who facilitate helping conversations or at least want to be trained how to do it. So, so, you know, whether that's with my clinical hat on or my coaching, mentor coaching hat on, what is the role of stigma? Where does it hold us back? So many people would be quick to say, "Well, stigma judges, uh, stigma shames and blames." And I'm uh, in the world of substance use disorder. No question about that. Mm-hmm. But here's the other thing that stigma does that that I think is where it is at its most impactful. Stigma simplifies. Stigma takes some of the most complex situations, conditions, um, societal situations, and it simplifies it. So the most basic example for me is if I could look at somebody who is struggling with active substance use disorder and I can wrap the complexity of that up into one word and simply say, you're an addict, end of discussion. I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to think deeply. I don't have to be curious about what else is involved in this most complex disease state that we call substance use disorder. If I, as a a man or a police officer, believe that I need to be a certain way and if I have those feelings inside that tell me I'm not and I – because we can use stigmatized language in our own internal dialogue, then I'm simplifying the complex because the situations we're talking about – simply because they have to do with human beings, are complex on top of complex on top of complex. So as a helping person, I think about that often. How do I honor that complexity? Whether it's working with someone in their own recovery, I always say for family members, show me a more complex relational place in the world, loving somebody with every fiber of your being who is in active substance use disorder. That's complex. And yet, we have in the family world had a history uh, of looking at family members and being very quick to use like, well, stop enabling. Well, stop being codependent. I wish it was that simple. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the kind – of, so wherever we look, that that's – that judgmental stigmatized language, I just always challenge people to think about – are we simplifying the complex because that's not going to work for any of us?
1: Don't you think a lot of it is we're just trying to keep something as it always – it'll always be this way. It always is going to be that way. It's really – it changes over time too. I mean as you start to – No question. So in recovery, we once were addicts, drunks. I was a right. drunk. You know? I was a you – know, all these yeah. things. And then you know Caitlin and I get in peer work and now we get on a show and now we are you know are we self serving are we yeah. not effective you know i mean it just there there's these dynamics change where you get certain buckets that are put in everywhere along the That's line right. and i think that where it comes back is how do you internalize your path forward and your right. you talk about paths well for me i have a very specific path and part of it requires accountability like somebody like brian
2: well and i think too though that you know speaking of complexity, this whole issue is way more complex than I think we could even talk about in one conversation sure. because you think of, you think of the the rate of change of technology. You think of the rate of change of our cultural dynamics. It took a while to get a pro we'll call it a program uh, in place that worked. And by the time it was working, the culture and the problem had progressed past that. So Marshall Goldsmith talks about how, what got you here won't get you there. Exactly, And in the, in the manufacturing environment, you call it rapid continuous improvement. You're constantly looking for ways to make changes. And I think where I've seen it get jammed up on the government side is that the government moves very slowly
4: yep.
2: and it's, it's not intentionally to hold people back. It's just that by the time you get through the bureaucratic approvals and you've got to, you got to get counsel from the outside experts and you try to put all this together. Now you're into a new fiscal year. And by the time you might make a decision, now there's already not some new whiz bang out there that's going to do a better job. And for you to finally go back and catch up with that, it's, it's kind of like the 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, right. We keep having to update and we just can't do it quickly enough. So as I see the peer model working so effectively in the local community and the, and the feedback we get from Caitlin and the things that Chris is seeing in the ED, as I see that happening and then I look out and see that people haven't even begun to incorporate these programs yet, it, it it's encouraging for you locally because you're using something that's effective. But I'm just, I'm hopeful that as people hear this, they can start to say, hey, wait, wait we not just for the sake of catching up, but there are other more effective programs out right. there that we could right. be employing
4: look i I by nature am an, an inherently incredibly impatient person uh, I'm not good at being patient and and being in this conversation is a daily exercise in patience of of at times the glacial change of the glacial pace of societal change so I Most days, Brian, I can't even get to thinking about like what are other states doing? Because one of the most crucial parts of this conversation right now is just with some of my colleagues in the established treatment and recovery world who are holding on to some older, I would argue, in the world, according to Keith Greer, some older ways (laughs) of thinking about about recovery. And that's where I feel like we have to do some of our beginning groundbreaking work is those of us who are already invested in the world, because because I do believe everybody's heart is in the right place. But sometimes we get caught up in the systems we work with, and the system itself has its own inertia that drags us along. That's such an important conversation. And I, I would make the argument, and this is a bias of mine, and I'll frame it as such, in the in the behavioral sciences and even maybe more specifically in the treatment and recovery world for substance use disorder, we have been guilty for a very long time of just doing what we've always done because it's what we've always done. And, and, and not, as you're saying, Brian, not incorporating what is the most updated research telling us. How do we take that research and sit down as people who practice the art of a helping conversation and figure out how to, how to bring that in to what I do we haven't been very good about that. We, we've kind of rested on our laurels for a really long time. Here's what treatment looks like. Here's what recovery looks like. And where it started, so, you know, where it started in the mid-30s with AA, it was brilliant. And it made so much sense at the time. And even the language made sense at the time to create a sense of community among folks who felt very ostracized by the greater community. That was a long time ago. And we can honor that and build on that. And, and now bring in, over the last generation, some newer ways of thinking about how people create change in their lives.
1: And to your point, I mean, that model does work very effectively for some no people. Question. For me, portions of it worked very effectively. But I can tell you, as I've said on the show before, anonymity was a fertile breeding ground for me to relapse. Right. Um, I needed – I know what anonymity to – Alcoholics Anonymous is and why it's important. But for me, being secretive about any of it was actually my sweet spot for getting in a lot of
4: trouble. And my hunch is – my hunch grows today that if you you were to speak with most people who would identify as being in recovery, most people have a path that is a – multiple paths. Yes, nuances. Right? Or – The path that worked for me, there's a gentleman I I do some coaching with who is about two and a half years into recovery. The path he was following two and a half years ago to get his recovery started, it's it's different today. He's at a different place. Mm -hmm. So that seems to be making sense. And how do we give people permission to explore all of those paths without any message being in there, especially that message being, well, here's how I found it. And if you don't find it this way, your recovery isn't real.
1: Right. Well, we're getting to it near the end here. Um, Brian, Caitlin, you got anything you want to add, anything you want to ask of Keith at this moment?
2: I, I mean, I think we're, we're 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 moving the needle a little bit in the sense that the more we talk about and highlight the efforts that are going on, yes. but what took us, What what took us what took what it took us to get here because this wasn't happening maybe five or 10 years ago. And so it's that inertia. It's that effort to change and highlighting that we need to keep that change going. And Mm -hmm. I, to me, that is kind of into that learning to appreciate people. Vain is, you know, I I don't have to understand. I don't have to have experienced all the same things you do, but I, I know that we're both kind of messed up people and we both also have equal value. And so we're in this together. And whether it's being a peer or someone supporting peer programs because they see the value in them, I think it's much more of this bringing the community back together instead of you all each go out and stand on
1: your own. Keith, do you got anything you want to shout out here for any? Uh,
4: yeah, a couple of things real quick. If if folks who are listening are interested in in getting some more information about becoming a certified recovery peer advocate in New York, uh, uh, Laurie's website is recoverycoachuniversity.com. Uh, all the information about trainings is, is there as well as our contact information. Feel free to give either of us a call to talk through what it all involves in New York. Um, uh, on, uh, just some of the things that I'm doing is you mentioned, I'm, I'm trying to have a little bit more of a, um, Oh, just being out a little bit more on LinkedIn, uh, yeah. both with some, um, some short uh, videos talking about some topics that are near and dear to my heart, as well as uh, just posting some articles and information that are relevant both to, to the recovery world, the larger coaching world, uh, just launched my own YouTube channel um, to uh, capture some of that. So I am, you know, in a, in, in a very similar way to what you guys are doing here, I'm just trying to get out there as much as I can and talk to mm-hmm. as many people as I can about where it appears that we're going and could go uh, to address this monumentally complex issue um, of, of uh, active substance use disorder.
1: Just uh, on the LinkedIn approach, the way you're handling it, you're handling it from a wellness, a mental health and right. wellness perspective and that's the smart way to do it because it's, yeah. it, it, there, there's, it's kind of frowned on anything else and the way you're handling it I think is wise. Right.
4: So that's good. Yeah, Thanks.
1: Brian, you want to bring us home here?
2: Yeah. I mean, so just back to that whole idea of, you know, I'm not perfect, uh, but sometimes I've got to remind myself that nobody is. Right. Um, Sometimes I have to pick myself up and recognize that I have value uh, and certainly to always be aware that everybody has that same value. And I think that is bringing us back to that more cohesive interaction and going back to kind of we the people instead of this very independent fractured society of me the people Uh, and that's what learning to appreciate people is all about
1: Thanks, Keith, for coming in. We appreciate it. Uh, the background information you're sharing, I think, is important. You know, Caitlin and I bring come at it from a peer perspective a lot of times, and you know, Brian is you know with, from a law enforcement standpoint. But it's nice to have the expertise behind the training and your perspective from the mental health organization as well. So, thank you, and uh, thank you to our audience for tuning in once one more time here, uh, where we believe that change lives, change lives. Thank you for listening to the 100 Proof Living podcast. Please remember to rate and review this show wherever you get podcasts. It really helps. Get more information at 100proofliving.com.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
1: A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
0: Ah. Oh.